Good morning. Gosh, this is going to be fun in this little intimate setting, I think, here. James, it's good to be back with you again. Had a good summer. Mormons coming over every week as usual. And uh, I have a couple of pastors dropping in now uh, uh, during the week, young, young startup pastors that are, want to spend time with me in the Bible, and that's good. But I have missed uh, you guys a lot. Uh, I could, in principle, do a little pop quiz on Isaiah, which was our last study, uh, because that's on the final exam, as you know. And uh, but I won't embarrass you. Uh, James is five um, uh, chapters long, 108 verses, and uh, to do this in five weeks puts a huge strain on me because ordinarily I'd zip through it in 20 minutes here for you, and you wouldn't get anything out of it at all. So I'm going to actually try to slow down and uh, take these 108 verses uh, a week, uh, chapter at a time. Uh, James is near the end of the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament, on page 1891. Uh, James is, I think, the, er, the first book written in the New Testament. That could be disputed, and we'll learn more about that later. We have four men named James in the New Testament. Uh, anybody know what the Hebrew equivalent of the word James is? Jacob. Jacob. So that's that's this another name for Jacob. And we and the we have uh, four at least four men named James. Uh, so there's always a little bit of problem of which one of the Jameses are we talking about here. One candidate might be James, the brother of John, the, the sons of Zebedee. Only something uh, happened to him. He got killed by Herod Agrippa in 42 A.D. And uh, uh, we, there was a man named James who led the, first, uh, the big church council in Jerusalem. That would have been in A.D. 49. Paul was there and there was this dispute about uh, 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 how much of the law the Gentiles should be asked to get to keep for the sake of the Jewish believers. And the, the, the guy that presided over that assembly was James. Uh, uh, Eusebius says that, that, that this James became the bishop or the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the early Christian assembly in Jerusalem, uh, James the Just. Uh, and maybe next week we'll tell you about his exciting martyrdom, which happened about uh, A.D. 66 or so. Um, because uh, he's very prominent. So this is a primitive letter. The Greek's very good. I remember the first time, a brand new Christian, I guess 40-some years ago, and I went down to Bill Newton's Christian bookstore on California Avenue, and he reached under the counter and pulled me up a little commentary on James by Spiro, Spiro Zodiades, which was great because Zodiades is good at the Greek, and the Greek of this book is, is excellent Greek. Uh, and I don't speak any Greek or even read Greek. Uh, we can, we've got Professor Anneker over if we need to help with the languages. But, but a lexicon actually brings up a lot of words in here that are really very rich in their meaning. So what if I were to read the first chapter just for fun? You can see kind of how he jumps around a little bit. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the grass he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then desire, uh, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Uh, uh, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Therefore, my beloved brethren, let each man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's the New King James Version, and your version may be a little bit differently. James introduces himself as the bond slave of Jesus. You remember when Steve took us through Jude, that that Jude said the same thing. He considered himself the bond slave of of Jesus and uh, very likely the half-brother of Jesus. So you would think, would you not think that he'd say, uh, from James, the brother of Jesus, and uh, uh, or some such thing? No, no. Because Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't believe in him, gave him a hard time. They, 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 it was probably really rough growing up in that family with the family up in Nazareth uh, with this uh, un, un, unusual boy, Jesus, and everybody picking on him and making fun of him and 
taunting him and, and ridiculing him his whole life long until after the resurrection. Now, in, Paul in Corinthians says that after the resurrection, Jesus visited a number of people, including James. And that's very likely then the time that James opened his heart and saw that Jesus was not just his half-brother, but the very Son of God. And so James writes here as the bondservant, the slave of Jesus, the voluntary slave. The apostles all say that, and of course that's just Romans 6. We're either slaves of sin or slaves of Jesus. Take your choice. That's the only two choices we've got. Uh, And uh, he pledges himself to serve the community in Jerusalem. Now, the early church at this time, say about 45 A.D., maybe 12, 15 years after the resurrection, would be mostly Jewish believers. Uh, It didn't take very long for the officials, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who killed Jesus, to cause a lot of havoc among the early Christians, Peter and the early apostles, right? Right? It wasn't exactly fun living in Jerusalem in the years that followed the the resurrection of Jesus. An awful lot of the Christians were driven out, and the church, the center of activities, moved up to Antioch in southern Syria. We see a lot of the the, the spread of Christianity then moved out of Jerusalem, but there was nevertheless a nucleus of people hanging around in Jerusalem. And... uh, uh, James writes this to the Jew, to the to the believers who are in the diaspora. The diaspora means the scattering of the seed. Now, when the Jews have been in exile from their country, uh, down through all of the centuries, they're always said to be in diaspora, to be living in a state of being scattered. Would James be writing to all Jews everywhere that were scattered? Not likely. Because there were, in fact, actually millions of Jews that lived outside of Israel all the way from the time of the Ptolemies. The Jewish population in Alexandria was about a million people during the time of the Ptolemies. There were all kinds of Jews that were merchants and traders and uh, living in Rome, large numbers in Rome. Uh, From the time uh, the Romans took over Israel, which was under Pompey in 63 uh, B.C., so, uh, so he, so James doesn't have in mind just those Jews that happen to not be living in Jerusalem anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and they got moved around because the emperor didn't want any Jews in Rome and threw them out for a while. And the great friends that helped Paul. So, so James is writing then to Jewish believers. And that would be, at that time, that would be most Christians in the world were Jews, or great numbers of them were, and they, for one reason or another, were, were scattered outside of Jerusalem. And the other thing was that for a believer to hang out in Jerusalem got to be life-threatening, so a lot of Jews just moved up to Asia Minor and got out of town. And so here is the, the leader of the church in uh, Jerusalem, writing to the Jews in the diaspora, the, the believers, scattered Jews. Now, uh, that, there's something kind of Jewish about this letter. Um, uh, half of the verses have imperatives, and it's kind of strong. Uh, there's a, at least 23 references to the Sermon on the Mount in here. Uh, it has kind of a Jewish flavor to it, and, and we can see why he would write this kind of a letter, if you just stop and think about it, why he would write this sort of letter. Now, he doesn't, 
this not a, uh, it's not a sermon because he jumps from subject to subject. He addresses the subject, moves on to something else, and then comes back to the first subject again. For example, the rich versus the poor would be one of the things that comes up. Uh, the, the, the subject of the tongue comes up a couple of times in here. Okay? Greetings. Greetings, the, the little word greetings in the first verse would be the standard way that, that in the Greek world that you'd greet each other. Remember, Paul doesn't usually start his letters that way. How does Paul start a letter? Grace and peace to you. Well, the more standard Greek greeting would be the word greetings. The, the, the word, Greek word greetings also means, it also means rejoice, turns out. Okay, my brothers. Now, when he says brothers, he means brothers and sisters. He means all believers, obviously. Generic term. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, that's ridiculous. <laughs> really bad things happen to you. The sky falls. And, and you know, when bad things happen to you, they all come in cascades all on one day. Phone rings and something comes in the mail. The house burns down. Your kids run away. Somebody gets busted. It all happens all at once, and you're supposed to sit there and say, "Thank God, this is I'm having a wonderful day." <laughs> well, that's James here. He says, and because he has in mind that if God has allowed a test or a trial in your life, if it, if God's allowed it, He intends to bring some long-term good out of it. So look beyond the immediate trial to what God's going to do. You're going to be miserable for a little while, and it's not going to be any fun, and you may even be full of despair for a little while. But look past that, because God wants to do something good out of this. Now, uh, he says various trials here, too. Uh, that's variegated, or trials of all kinds. That would be uh, trials that come from circumstances in your life. You just lost your job. Uh, you can't pay your bills. Something's gone wrong in the external part of your life. And trials also have to do with living with people. Living with people can put a whole lot of stress on it. So you have a really bad day with your spouse or the kids. And uh, so he's covering all the bases here with that little word, variegated trials. Now, he talks about the testing of our faith. And very interesting here in... Uh, in this first chapter, he uses the same Greek word for testing as he does for temptation. Uh, and you have to look at the context and say, does he mean a test of your faith or does he mean a temptation? A temptation would be to solicit somebody to sin, to draw or entice somebody into sin. And he'll talk about that in a minute. But right here at the beginning, he's talking about the things that test us. And the idea there would be to test with the idea of uh, refining, yeah, build a new fancy sports car, and the manufacturer takes it out on the road and runs it to the absolute limit through the mud and the slop and the rain and way over the speed limit and recklessly drives it around to get all the flaws out of it so it can be fixed and put in perfect order. Nokia phones does that with their phones. Uh, they're absolutely tested ruthlessly so that you can drop them and throw them around and they'll still work. Right, yeah. Well, that's that's the idea of testing, testing, uh, proving, proving. Uh, how do you know how much you can handle unless you've hand, had to handle it? I'm sure you've all had circumstances in your life when things came upon you and said, I can never get through this. I can't handle this. This is way over my head. And then a week later, you've gotten through it, and you say, well, that wasn't quite so bad. Well, that's the idea here. 
The testing of your faith produces patience. Patience is a wonderful Greek word. Uh, it's used quite a lot in the New Testament, and the Greek word literally means... That's another word. Remain under. Hupomene means to remain under, which would be hanging in tough in the middle of great pressure. Can you hang in tight when there's pressure on you? That's just a wonderful word, patience. means enduring whatever God has asked you to go through no matter how rough it is. Hupomene, remaining under, remaining under trial. Okay, And if you can learn to remain under trial long enough and not lose your cool, the pressure on you will work in you uh, two things. It will make you perfect and complete in the long run. Now, the word perfect is not the word that you think it is. Uh, It doesn't mean freed from flaws. The word teleos, the Greek word means mature. Full grown. How are you ever going to grow up if you don't have to go through trials? How does a kid ever grow up to be a man unless he goes through some tests and trials and in a Marine Corps boot camp or something? So why does Jesus ask us to put in the lost place? It's not in the Well, we're not talking about temptation yet. We're, this, we're talking about testing. No, the same word. The same word, but the context here is that you're being tested. You're not being now. If you buckle under a t- under a trial and you cave in and you get angry and you lose your cool, and then that test has turned into a temptation. But it wasn't intended by God to be this. It was intended to be a test to make you full grown and mature. Even Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Me- means brought to full mature manhood. The other part, the other word along here is complete. That's an interesting Greek word also. Uh, complete in all of your parts, whole. Now, uh, we talked in Leviticus. Remember Leviticus? Uh, you must be holy for I am holy. You must be whole for I am whole. That God wants you well-rounded, complete, able to handle everything. He'd like all the hidden potential of your life to be developed and brought out so that you can be a complete human being. Whole. That's what Paul's. The, the patience in the trials is designed to make you full grown, mature, and well rounded. Do non believers get tested? Yeah, I suppose so. Not like this. Not with the. The testing here is, has a purpose in mind. Um, non believers go through all of the trials and consequences we do, but they are they going to benefit? Well, probably not. This is a loving father who's doing this to you. That's why we've got the rejoice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, God might pull the rug out from under you if you're a stubborn, obstinate sinner, and you're too proud, then he'd pull the rug out from under you and humble you, and then you come to the Lord. That happens occasionally. That we're not talking about evil yet. We're talking about growing us up, how to how, making you grow up. What happens if you did not have any trials at all in life and everything was just a bed of roses and you were just a spoiled rich kid, <laughs> and and you were you were all pampered and nothing bad ever happened to you? You'd just grow up to be a real wimp and a real nobody. Wouldn't? How would you ever be 
the whole person that the the man or woman that you you really want to be. What James is talking about is the testing that God brings into the lives of his children. We'll forget about the rest of the world for a minute. Okay? God, God's going God's to send tests into your life. Don't be discouraged when they happen. They may be, seem overwhelming at the time. Hang in there, tough it out, and, and it'll have a, a long-term valuable result in growing you up. That's the whole idea. So don't be discouraged by that. That would also say that testing and trials and bad things happen to Christians all the time. Okay? But we've got to finish this couple verses at least. <laughs> Knowing uh, the testing of your faith produces patience, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Whole, well-rounded, mature. Now, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, the the Greek idea of wisdom is not the same as the Hebrew idea of wisdom. If you uh, lack wisdom, it says here that you can go to God and he'll give you wisdom right on the spot. That he he, uh, isn't going to chide you or chew you out because you're dumb. Uh, even if you are, he's not going to rebuke you. He's generous, and, and he will give you wisdom right on the spot with a proviso in, in a minute. Uh, what kind of wisdom are we talking about here? That we need every day, moment by moment, all the time. What, how does this work? The Holy Spirit's the one that would give that to you, but what sort of a crisis would come into your life today that you have to make a decision about that it would be very nice if you had wisdom from God? Should I marry this person? Should I take that job? Should we move to Arizona? Uh, practical wisdom? Practical I've got this friendship and we're not getting along well. And Lord, would you please give me wisdom so that this relationship could be healed, so that I don't lose my cool with this difficult person? Practical wisdom. You can ask for it and you get it. The idea here is you'll get it right now if you ask for it. Right now. You don't need to stew or fret or worry or be anxious because if you ask for God for wisdom, you'll get it. That's the whole idea. God is generous. And he's generous with wisdom. Good, sound advice. Big brother, uh, godly grandfather that's going to give you good advice. But there's one little proviso that goes here. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. The word doubting here is kind of the word ambivalence. And there's nothing wrong in analyzing a complicated situation and getting a lot of different opinions and, uh, and and wrestling with all the issues. That's not the kind of doubting we're talking about here. What's the kind of doubting do you suppose? He says, because if you're one of these doubting people, then you're not going to get anything from God. It would be basically a lack of trust. Or maybe God's just your life insurance plan and you don't really, you're just sort of asking him uh, maybe as a kind of catch-all. Maybe hopefully he might come through, but you, 
You're not counting on that. So that's the idea about doubting. And he says the person who doubts, here the Greek is really interesting, is like a, a wave in the open ocean that is driven and tossed by the wind. And here the Greek words would suggest a violent tossing storm at sea. If you've ever been at sea, uh, when the wind is blowing and the waves are 30 feet high and there's foam uh, all over the place, well, this is the kind of person he's talking about who is full of doubt, who's tossed around like a leaf in a great big roaring tempest. that was very vivid. Um, and then he goes on to say that this person is double-minded in all his ways, this individual. And there the Greek word is... Literally, two-souled. Two-souled. What is a two-souled person? That would sort of person be kind of at odds against himself, a little bit of sort of at least Jekyll and Hyde sort of, but... Yeah, exactly. One foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of heaven, uh, kind of... Uh, Teetering on the fence, can't decide to go all out for Jesus, and and you want to hedge your bets, so uh, you go to church a little bit because it's kind of helpful. But in your heart, God does not like double-minded individual. He's not going to pay much attention to the double-minded, wishy-washy, uncommitted person. Now you begin to see a little bit about what James is all about. James is no nonsense. Look, no nonsense, and it's going to be. It's going to get more and more about uh, that whole theme in here is he wants real, genuine Christian living out of people who say that they are believers. That's his whole idea here. And he wants genuine faith, not imitation fake kind of faith. So that's the idea. All right? Can patience turn? Oh, ambition. Oh, yeah, sure. Temptation. It all depends. It all depends on how you handle temptation. We haven't gotten to temptation yet. We've gotten testing. Now, now, if God gives you a test, you might become bitter, cynical. You might give up. You might not handle the test that God gave you in the way that He'd like you to handle it. People do buckle under testing, and it, it, it happens to other cell phones, not to Nokia, but other cell phones fail <laughs> under testing. And they have to be junked. So, is that correct? Bob, yeah. Well, you can fail a test today and pick yourself up and start over again. We do that all the time. How hard is it to raise kids? How long do you have to spend uh, disciplining and training your kids to turn them from being spoiled, rebellious brats, uh, anarchists into civilized young men and women? How hard a job is that? Well, I think it's pretty hard, probably. Yeah. 88 years. <laughs> well, yes, and I... And 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 uh, God's still disciplining and testing me a bunch too. So all right, all right. So that so uh, uh, if you really want God on your side, then the idea would be here to give yourself wholeheartedly to Him and pay attention to the to, to the rules and and uh, 
don't put one foot in the world. Around here, that's probably our most common problem is living worldly lives and, and living in all this luxury and enjoying all of the things that we've got and letting them all turn into idols one kind or another. Now, verse 9, change of subject. Let the lowly brother, that's humble brother, uh, or the poor brother, glory in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. No sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. The flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. James has a thing for poor people and rich people. It, it, we're not so class conscious as maybe the Christians would have been in Jerusalem when this was written, where there would be some very, very wealthy people in the Christian assembly and some very poor people in a society which had a very much of a hierarchical structure between rich and poor. A lot of very poor people and slaves, bottom of the pecking order, you wouldn't ordinarily mix with them. Uh, rich uh, having uh, privileges and and now you're in the Christian church and now suddenly it's all level and you're all brothers and sisters. So uh, that this is going to be a theme that that bugs James a lot and he says something about the lowly brother. The lowly brother is going to end up exalted, whatever that means, and the rich person is going to end up humiliated, whatever that means. Now there's nothing wrong with being rich. There are a lot of rich, godly people who are generous, godly in their character and their behavior. And there are a lot of poor people that are terribly selfish, stubborn, deserve to be poor. So it isn't rich and poor as such. But why does he, what does he talk about the, the poor or the lowly or the humble person as if he had been exalted already and the rich man as if he'd already been humbled? Why is that? Well, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come before Jesus uh, on the same basis, and we're all brothers and sisters, no matter what our status in the world is. And the, the, the poor man is more likely to be clinging to God already because he needs it just to stay alive one day at a time. And the rich person is more likely to take his wealth uh, uh, for granted and count on it and put his trust in it. It doesn't always happen, but that would be the tendency, wouldn't it? Just write a check when you want to cover something, and and and, and you spend your whole life sort of comfortable with your earthly possessions. But the poor person tends to not be as comfortable. Now, what is what's what's going to be like when we get to heaven? What what have we brought with us to heaven besides your Macintosh computer, which they're allowed in, but not not PCs? Uh, and I I think that we're working on the cell phone issue to get some. What, what are you What are you going to take with you into heaven? Zero. You're the richest man on the whole peninsula, and you've got millions and millions of dollars. You're Silicon Valley, uh, Googleite, and you're filthy rich, and you're going to die, and you're a believer, and you go to heaven, and then what? What does your bank account read? It reads zero. And the poor man's going to go into heaven. Now, your bank account isn't really going to read zero when you get to heaven. What's it? What are you going to have in your bank account in heaven? You're going to have the, the, the dividends from serving Jesus and, and using the wealth you had, the time you had, the opportunity you had to serve God because that's going, that's your treasures being sent on ahead. 
Okay, but now, uh, so he's talking about a bunch of people here. Uh, some are wealthy and some are poor. Some are proud and some are humble. And he wants to level this all, the whole playing ground, level it right off and say, hey, you guys, you're all brothers and sisters. Pitch in and help each other. If you're proud right now and you're and you're confident in your wealth, you're gonna it's gonna you're gonna lose it. And then he uses this beautiful analogy of the spring flowers coming up in the meadows, and absolutely gloriously beautiful uh, for a couple of weeks until the summer sun comes up, and then the wildflowers die, and the grass is gone. And so how ephemeral life is. This is this is something else James thinks about how short life is, how brief it is. Remember Billy Graham on the Oprah show a few years ago, and she said, what is the most uh, biggest thing you've learned in your whole life? And Billy Graham said, the brevity of it all, how brief it is, how short it is, how quickly it's over with. And you get older, it speeds up, and you you really see that. So, Amen. amen. (laughs) We have a few people in here that are up sort of over 40 or 50 now. No sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, and the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Look at all this wealth in Silicon Valley. Come back in 100, 200 years. Look at the ruins of great civilizations that have had wealth and the palaces of great kings. And where are they? They, they fade away. And the things that we're working talking about are eternal things. Now, Change of subject, now we're going to talk about temptation. Same Greek word, but it's different context. We're going to talk about the process by which a person is lured or enticed or seduced into sin. Now we're talking about the, the seduction, how it is that you give in to temptation and, and how that takes place. Um, Blessed is the man who endures temptation when he has been proved. He will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That belongs to the previous section there. That just says, hang in there through the temptation. God will reward you. And some people suffer their whole lives long. People that have physical pain or in difficult circumstances may have years of hardship and suffering or persecution. Now, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God or from God. God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil. That is, God has no experience in evil. He is by nature ignorant of evil. He couldn't do evil if he wanted to. He does not know how to do evil. Everything God does is holy and good by his very nature. So you know, so don't accuse God of doing bad things to anybody because he can't. can't do it. And it says that uh, uh, he himself tempts no one. Temptation is going to come into your life, but the source is not God. It never is God. Now, God has allowed it. He's given permission. Remember, Job, that God gave the devil permission to go test Job. It was more testing for Job than it was temptation, but same idea. Temptation and testing can be fairly closely but here the idea is, how come you guys get into, how come you stumble and fall? Where does, how does that happen? I assume some of you have had some experience in stumbling and falling, maybe, when you were young or something. But you've heard about it. But here he says, uh, each one of you is tempted. 
enticed into sin when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The word desire here, epithemia, means strong desire of any kind. It does not have to be lust. It could be any kind of a strong desire can be a source of temptation and sin. Any desire. It does not have to be an evil desire that causes you to sin. Then he uses two Greek words that are used in hunting and fishing. He says that people are lured and enticed into giving in to their own desires. And the devil, of course, is the one who's luring and enticing. You lure uh, a, a, a bird into a, a net or you, you lure a fish into, to catch the bait. The, the devil is working on your emotions and playing with your your with your feelings and your desires that's how where temptation is getting it started the the existence of the desire was was okay not necessarily bad and then something began to happen in your mind and then what happens in your mind when the desire is there and you think about it a while and you've got an enemy out there who is working on you does, do you, is there any place in the Bible where you can see a pattern like this ever having happened in the history of the race? Genesis. Genesis. This is what happened to Eve. She's minding her own business, hanging out in the garden, and this serpent, the shining one, comes up to her and says, Oh, by the way, have you noticed this nice tree over there? Gee, it's a really... Look at that fruit. I'll bet it really tastes good. And she says, Oh, yes, I like fruit. And she says, gee, I wonder what it would be like to eat that fruit. And it does, for the moment, she's forgotten that it's forbidden. And then this little voice says a bunch of little lies. God wouldn't put this fruit here in the garden if it was going to harm you in any way. And there's the little head game goes on. So the heart is involved, the mind is involved, and then the will is involved. And once the decision-making has crossed the will... That's when the sin takes place. Not the presence of the temptation, not the things going on in your mind, though the longer you think about it in your mind, the more you're going to rationalize it. I'm going to go down and buy a nice new BMW this afternoon. It really makes good sense because my last year's is getting a little rusty now. And, uh, so, 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 the, so temptation starts with a, a legitimate desire, the devil calls your, your attention to the desire. A process of rationalizing goes on in your mind. You come to a point of decision when you yield. And the devil then has got you, he's got you no longer trusting in Jesus, but giving in to him. When that happens, he's, it's exactly like the conception of a child. You've passed the point of no return. A baby is conceived. A child, a child will grow up inside of you and in term, in term that baby will be born and the baby's name is death. Death meaning boredom, loneliness, guilt, frustration, emptiness, brokenness, alienation. That's the consequence engine. Now you can ask any place along the line, you can ask for God's forgiveness for this sin. That doesn't stop the baby from being born, does it? The consequences are going to show up and you have to live with them. That's the same thing as whoever sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Whoever sows from the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Same, same deal. 
This is a, now this is, applies for a, a man or a woman or any one of us. Look how helpful this, helpful. I, this is one of the most helpful verses in the New Testament, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The devil is out there putting bad thoughts in our minds all the time. He's looking for ways of luring us. The quicker you get Jesus involved in the process, the safer you are. The, the longer you uh, let this thought run around in your mind and you entertain the idea of something, uh, the, the, the more difficult it's going to be to get out of the sin. It's also, if you have a legitimate desire like I'm hungry and I'd like dinner, that's legitimate. You can go to God real early on and say, I'm hungry, I'd like dinner. Uh, the quicker that God's involved in the process, the quicker you remind yourself in the mind of what God says here, the quicker your will is engaged with Jesus, the, the easier it is to get through this process. So we're tempted all the time. Uh, the devil's actively looking around for people that he can seduce, entice, lure. He does not play fair. He, he's not a good guy. He's out to destroy to warp, to maim. Okay, that's that. That's a good, really good, isn't it? He says, everyone is tempted when he is drawn away, drawn away from the Lord by his own desires and enticed. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Very clear. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Change of subject. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Uses some astronomy terms now here. He, uh, he, says, he says every good gift, every act of giving that is genuine originates with God. The act of giving, when somebody gives for the right reason, that action originates with God and the gift that is given is from God. It's pretty neat. God is the giver of good gifts, and he's also the one that motivates people to giving. Both are, are commendable. So that's pretty good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of the lights, the Father of the stars, the Father of the angels, and we are the lights. And with God there is no parallax and no eclipsing. <laughs> that's... That's what James says literally. He says, no variation. God is totally invariant. He is not subject to, to eclipses or parallax at all. Steady, unwavering, uh, dependable. The father of lights. Kind of nice to be a son or daughter of light. To have that kind of a father who's, who's loving and caring and, and always reliable. Now, the next verse is good. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What the Greek says here is, having willed it, he begat us again by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Having chosen us, having chosen us, he begat you again. Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father, but you are begotten of the Father also as sons and daughters of the Father. By a new birth process, see the new birth in there? 
And God chose you. He calls you by means of the spiritual rebirth. See how important it is here to be spiritually reborn in the whole process. When you're spiritually reborn, you join the company of Jesus in the resurrection as first fruits. The first fruits of the harvest is all tied in with the resurrection. Isn't that a neat little verse there? Having willed it, having decided ahead of time, he brought you forth, begot you again. Conception of by his holy word, just like Jesus was conceived in the, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, you were conceived by the Spirit of God and, and brought into a new birth. And the word here, creatures, is really the word creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So the new person that you are inside is totally 100% new, like Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brothers, change of subject, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, or gay anger. The anger, wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's an indictment I have to remind myself about all the time. What does James say here about getting angry? He's talking about the settled, abiding anger that may be legitimate, not the flare-up of a road rage or something sudden. He says that your anger does not, cannot, will not bring about the righteousness of God, won't solve the problem. That's a hard one, isn't it? It's so much fun to get angry at somebody when they've really wronged you. It's so much fun to put set somebody straight. <laughs> it feels so good. You think, man, I've got that person straightened out. But right here it says, no, that, that's not going to work. That's not how righteousness comes about in people. It doesn't come about through man's anger. Leave it to God. That's why we don't take vengeance on others, why we leave it up to God. That's, uh, James, you may want to not come back into that for the rest of James It's because there's a, quite a bit of indictment in here, for me at least. Uh, Therefore, my beloved brothers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Now we get also this swift to hear, slow to speak. Uh, idea the uh, and um, there's a real problem when you talk too much and you talk too much without knowing what you're saying and, and you just rattle off a bunch of words and it's far better in many situations far better to just do a quite a lot of listening first you're talking the a friend comes over and isn't it with some problems usually a good idea to just listen and listen and listen and not jump to conclusions that's what he's got in mind here uh, be, be swift to hear, uh, be teachable, slow to speak. Don't come to, don't come, lash out with rash opinions. Slow to anger. In verse 21, he says, "Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness." I think the King James calls this uh, "put aside the superfluity of naughtiness." <laughs> Does anybody, have, whatever that is, I think that's what the original King James says here. But he's saying, strip, a, strip away from your life filthiness. It's really earwax in, in Greek. Not uh, cleaning your ears out. Uh, uh, the sin that hangs close to you. Put aside all filthiness and the overflowing of wickedness. He, he, 
takes two good, strong Greek words here for sin and uh, that are hard to put into English, but the, the idea here would be strip out of your life everything that's clearly defiling, wrong, needs to be gotten out of there. Uh, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Once you have a clean heart, once you have a clean heart, you can the implanted word can fall on good soil and bring forth good fruit. I, do I hear heavenly choirs? <laughs> we will uh, pick up there. We're not going to even get a chapter done today. Our Father, thanks for the letter of James. Thank you for uh, these rich words that are so full of meaning. Uh, please impress this on our heart this week and uh, that we might learn. Uh, watch and go with us this week, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. No danger of running overtime, is it? <laughs>